and welcome to the role of executive power and discretion under the rule of law, a conference held at Stanford University's Hoover Institution in March of 2015. Hosted by distinguished visiting fellow Alan Meltzer and senior research fellow Ken Scott, the conference is part of Hoover's initiative on regulation and the rule of law, which conducts research and analysis on the foundations of the market system, private property rights, and the rule of law in relation to a free society. This podcast features Christopher DeMuth Sr. of the Hudson Institute, presenting his paper entitled, Can the Administrative State Be Tamed? The discussant is Michael McConnell of the Hoover Institution, and it was recorded on March 5, 2015. Uh, my paper is a, uh, a broad look uh, at the uh, concentration of, uh, of political power, lawmaking power, in the executive branch of the uh, federal government, uh, an attempt to uh, describe it, uh, to provide an accounting of its causes, some of its consequences, and because I think uh, some of the consequences are uh, seriously untoward, uh, to uh, think through uh, the dilemmas of, of reform, uh, which uh, because of my ideas of causation, uh, uh, it presents uh, some very deep uh, dilemmas. I came to this project <coughs> with three uh, antecedent uh, views. I wouldn't call them priors. This isn't a scientific paper, but, but three views. Uh, the first is that the transfer of lawmaking power from the Congress to the executive branch and executive uh, agencies uh, is, uh, a, uh, is, is a highly uh, important uh, development uh, in American government. Uh, that it has resulted, uh, I wouldn't say that it has been a cooperative game, but certainly conscious parallelism in that we have had a, a continuous uh, stream of delegations of legislative power uh, to the executive branch, uh, punctuated by intermittent power grabs uh, by the executive of things Congress had not given it, uh, but which Congress then acquiesces uh, in. Uh, that, uh, uh, that this is problematic uh, for a number of reasons, uh, that uh, first and foremost, uh, that we have a constitutional scheme uh, that depends upon uh, competition among branches uh, in between elections to keep things uh, relatively uh, honest on the up and up, uh, focused on some conception of the, uh, the public interest. Uh, and uh, that the concentration of power uh, threatens that, uh, and that also that it leads to uh, excess, uh, that we increasingly have laws uh, that are made by specialized uh, agencies and agencies that do not face uh, budget constraints. Uh, the uh, costs, uh, the important costs of their policies <coughs> are realized in the, uh, the private sector, and so we have, uh, we have a lot of uh, potential uh, for uh, excessive policy, policies that would uh, not uh, stand a chance of, uh, of uh, passing uh, a well-informed uh, vote. Uh, my second uh, prior view is that uh, despite the, uh, uh, the headline-catching uh, 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 controversies uh, uh, during the Obama uh, administration, uh, where the, uh, the President and his administration have uh, taken extraordinary liberties uh, with uh, statutory law, 
uh, and the continuing dramatic uh, delegations of power, such as we see in the uh, Affordable Care Act and the uh, Dodd-Frank Act, uh, that uh, uh, this is not uh, a, uh, a Democratic Party or Obama uh, phenomenon, uh, that uh, these uh, new statutes uh, and that many of the things that the President uh, has done, uh, while they are they're, they're pretty bold, they're pretty dramatic, uh, they have many antecedents, including during the George W. Bush uh, administration. And uh, in a way, uh, uh, the table was set uh, for these uh, assertions of executive power uh, that we have seen in, uh, in recent years. Uh, it's also not particularly a Republican versus Democratic phenomenon. We see it in all administrations. Uh, the big times of regulatory growth have been uh, under George W. Bush and Richard Nixon. Uh, conservatives talk a good game about, uh, about uh, free markets and uh, overregulation, uh, but they don't really do, uh, do very much about it. Uh, the uh, contract with America, the, the big Newt Gingrich uh, phenomenon back in the mid-1990s was mostly about uh, uh, spending, uh, welfare, uh, social issues, teen pregnancy, things like that. Uh, it didn't do much about regulation. One uh, was that it said it was going to apply regulations to the Congress, which is an expansion of regulation. Uh, the second was to pass a law, which, it did pa which they did pass when they got control uh, of the Congress, of the, Congress of the Congressional Accountability Act. Uh, which provided expedited procedures for uh, overruling recently enacted, uh, recently issued uh, major regulations uh, into the executive branch. That was their idea of the uh, cure. Uh, it has never, with one trivial, unimportant case uh, exception, uh, it has never been used uh, to uh, counteract anything that the executive branch uh, has, has done. Uh, my third prior view was that uh, that 1970 was really, really an important date, uh, that, the, that the launch, that the takeoff of the executive state uh, was not uh, uh, the steamboat inspection service in the early 19th century or the Interstate Commerce Commission in the late uh, or Woodrow Wilson's election in 1912 uh, and the Federal Reserve and the Federal Trade Commission in the years that came after that. And, and not really even in the New Deal with its constellation of uh, economic and financial uh, regulatory agencies. It really came in 1970, uh, and all sorts of things started to change in 1970. Uh, that it was then that Congress began to enact uh, a fleet of new regulatory agencies, uh, which were not so much concerned with regimenting production, which is what the old agencies did, uh, but to promoting new uh, forms of consumerism, environmentalism, uh, worker protections that didn't have to do with uh, labor, uh, with labor uh, unions, uh, uh, to enact these agencies which had breathtaking economy-wide uh, scope. Uh, uh, at the same time, other things were happening. It was also in 1970 uh, that we began to have regular large budget deficits, that Congress uh, uh, was really got serious in dismantling the old uh, seniority system. Uh, the uh, committee chairmen began to lose an enormous amount of their power. 
uh, the internal uh, disciplines uh, such as they were that had existed in the past uh, tended, uh, began to give way to something of a legislative uh, free-for-all. Uh, and uh, even uh, taxation, which according to the Constitution is a particularly leg uh, legislative responsibility and even has to begin in the People's Chamber, uh, the House of Representatives, uh, they began to uh, turn over uh, outright taxing authority to executive branch agencies. So I came with kind of all of these things in my head and I wanted to see if I could uh, provide some more uh, understanding for myself and anybody that read the paper of how this came about. Uh, the first thing that I discovered uh, was uh, that a lot more was going on in 1970, uh, that it was not so much these agencies uh, as the discovery of 553, informal rulemaking. It had been there in the Administrative Procedure Act since the 40s. It had been used very, very little. Uh, there's almost no case law on uh, 553. Uh, and it wasn't just that the new agencies were using rulemaking to adapt uh, $100 million and more policies applying broadly across the economy, uh, but even the old agencies like the SEC and the uh, ICC uh, figured out what are we doing, you know, adjudicating some measly little case about whether somebody can drive a truck from Castroville to Reno uh, when somebody else is already in the market and objects. We can make law for the whole, uh, for the whole country through uh, rulemaking. And it was then that uh, rulemaking uh, began to, uh, uh, that, that uh, federal regulation uh, began to take off. I don't want to, uh, to diminish what uh, came before. Uh, the, uh, the federal government's uh, uh, grabbing control of the electromagnetic spectrum, the cartelization of, uh, of uh, many key sectors, especially transportation and communications. Uh, those were big. They had a big uh, economic effect. Uh, and uh, as you'll see it, when I get to my explanation uh, for how this has happened in a moment, uh, I do believe that the uh, changes in uh, that the Supreme Court's acquiescence uh, in uh, in a federal government of essentially unlimited powers in the mid 1930s uh, was uh, was an important uh, antecedent, but the dramatic change came in 1970. And once you start thinking this way, you see it everywhere. So that I looked at the uh, presidential signing statement paper uh, that we're going to discuss tomorrow. And it talks about how signing statements took off in 1980. But I look at their chart, and it really took off in 1970. So in some weird way, it fits my, they only have a few data points in the 70s. But the, it, it tends to turn upwards, uh, just as in the chart that's on the cover of my paper uh, that shows the uh, growth of the court, c Code of Federal Regulations. It begins this sharp upturn uh, in the early 1970s. Secondly, concerns about administrative discretion and the rule of law uh, go back a long way. Uh, they go back to the New Deal, of course, but since we're concerned with the administrative state and I take my beginnings as the Administrative Procedure Act, it had barely passed uh, when there were a host of proposals to conform with this new uh, this, this new structure of administrative lawmaking more thoroughly to traditional uh, rule of law uh, norms. There were concerns, especially with the lack of division between prosecution 
and, uh, uh, and judging, because this was done uh, within the same agency, fairly lacks uh, standards of evidence. Uh, in many cases, uh, not uh, uh, opportunities for making decisions uh, outside of a, a circumstance where you would have the clash of attorneys and argumentation back and forth, uh, findings of fact and so forth. You can find uh, proposals to stiffen up the requirements of the, of the Administrative Procedure Act going back to the early, uh, 19, uh, early 1950s uh, when rulemaking got underway. Uh, there was the famous, among administrative law uh, types, uh, uh, 1970s years, those great glory years of the D.C. Circuit, uh, where the judges uh, proposed uh, to impose on their own, uh, uh, their own uh, volition uh, uh, a lot of increased uh, formality uh, on what the agencies were doing with this new discovery they had made of uh, informal rulemaking. Uh, so there, were, there have been many, many initiatives going back uh, many, many decades to conform the Administrative Procedure Act more thoroughly to traditional lawyers' notions of protections of the rights of individuals, high standards of uh, evidence, fi uh, findings, uh, and uh, decisions by an uh, independent uh, judge uh, or hearing officer. Every one of them has failed. There's one trivial little thing uh, about ex parte communications in the in uh, uh, formal adjudication. But every one of these proposals uh, has uh, failed in the Congress. Uh, in Vermont Yankee, the uh, Supreme Court uh, put uh, uh, an end. It didn't really come on that day, but eventually uh, ended most of the uh, efforts to formalize the procedures of the agencies uh, done by the D.C. Uh, Circuit uh, Court of Appeals. These proposals are still being made today, and I just noticed that it, this has been going on for 60 years, and judges of every philosophical and party background, uh, congresses of every uh, partisan composition have, uh, have turned their backs on it and have done so uh, increasingly. Instead, we have had a different sort of uh, dispensation, uh, backed uh, both by statute and by the, uh, uh, and by the uh, courts. Uh, which I call uh, ad hoc non-electoral administrative democracy. Uh, that is that the agencies possess uh, breathtaking formal uh, discretion, uh, that uh, they can essentially make law in many, many respects, but there is a condition to their discretion. They must be uh, transparent, they must be open, they must provide highly detailed uh, explanations of their decisions. Anybody that wants to come to the rulemaking party has to be invited in, and if they submit comments, the agency has to show that they've taken those comments very, very seriously. It is a policy uh, that I call uh, porosity, uh, and uh, uh, it, is, uh, uh, it is a, uh, a new form of uh, lawmaking. Uh, I do not regard it as uh, highly uh, inconsistent uh, with the discretion that is given to uh, the administrative agencies. I regard uh, specialization uh, and uh, openness uh, as being uh, close kin. Uh, the agencies are concerned uh, with a, a, a huge uh, variety of small, of particular little issues, uh, women's sports or emissions standards for kilns.
of one design uh, or another. Uh, and uh, there are a group of people that are interested in those issues. Uh, the agency has to be conscientious in listening to them, in letting them into the party, explaining what they're what they are doing. So they are. It's a new form of democracy. As I say, it's not electoral. It's sort of ad hoc. It is uh, specialized, but it creates these lots and lots of little subcultures of of uh, lawmaking uh, around uh, Washington. As I was increasingly impressed by the momentum here. And uh, I, uh, I, I, am, uh, I understand the criticisms that have made, been made of, uh, we have a wonderful example in Richard Epstein's paper of criticisms of the Chevron Doctrine where the courts are uh, abundantly, in most cases, deferential on matters of law to administrative agencies, but in many cases are not deferential at all to findings of fact, which is a complete inversion of rule of law uh, traditions. It's kind of inexplicable. Uh, to me, it is, I think I have uh, the explanation. I think that uh, there is a, and I'll get to it in a minute, but I think that this growth of administrative law has been uh, organic. It obeys a logic of its own. It has enormous momentum. Uh, and uh, I have a discussion of the Chevron case. I don't know if a court wanted to follow what Richard thinks is the right thing um, and actually make the decision as to whether a plant or one stack is a source. Uh, the court would be a policymaker. It was faced with this engine of administrative policymaking. Uh, the statute said nothing about it. The legislative history said nothing about it. If the court was going to make the decision, it was going to become an uber executive. And it was going to, and there had been differences between different administrations on this particular point of, uh, of, uh, of uh, environmental uh, regulatory policy. And they, they were being asked to freeze one interpretation into, into uh, uh, presidential law, I think that they were bowing to the uh, inevitable. My, uh, th this impression as I went back and I looked at the history of these rule of law debates and how they were swept aside and how this new dispensation was put in its place led me to an explanation which I call a material explanation. Uh, you could call it an economic explanation, but I want to get more than economics into it. I want to get technology. So I call it uh, material, and it's just a few pages in the middle of the paper, but it's the, it's the, it's the guts uh, of the piece. And I give an account of the growth of the administrative state uh, as a result of two developments. One, but you can just think of modernity, the modern world. Uh, the first part is uh, affluence uh, and education, uh, which has led to uh, mass, highly lower D democratic uh, politics. Uh, uh, the the uh, inputs to political activity are discretionary time, uh, the ability to acquire, assimilate, communicate uh, uh, information, skills of argumentation and persuasion. These are this is what politics is all about, and until a century ago. Very, very, these talents were very, very limited to small uh, numbers of elites. Uh, mass education, high affluence uh, have made all of us 
uh, political uh, activists uh, today. Uh, people have opinions on a wide-ranging uh, issues. Uh, and uh, uh, national politics, which was concerned about two or three issues in the domestic realm, even as recently as 50 or 60 years ago, is now concerned with a thousand issues. If we started making a list, I think we could actually get to a thousand, and most of us would recognize some of them. I, I introduced some that you might not have heard, such as uh, disaster contingency plan for mu magicians rabbits. Uh, that is a federal law that you might not have known about, but I mean that would you know we would get there when we were getting down to uh, a thousand. Uh, the second is uh, technology. I'm going to accelerate my presentation here, uh, which is essentially telecommunications uh, 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 and transportation uh, uh, technology, which has radically lowered transaction costs. And economists don't like transaction costs. Uh, and uh, uh, we celebrate uh, the fall of transaction costs that has led to greater market entry, greater competition, all sorts of greater innovation, all sorts of wonderful things in private markets. But it has also deeply affected policy markets, uh, because especially in uh, communications uh, in uh, recent uh, decades, it is possible to put together uh, affinity groups, political affinity groups called interest groups. Uh, with uh, at very, very low costs uh, to, uh, to set up specialized communications uh, networks to mount political campaigns to raise funds uh, at much lower cost for highly specialized causes than was ever possible in the past. And it has had similarly profound effects on the, uh, su the supply side. Uh, the old hierarchies of political party and congressional structure have been taken apart as individual politicians can make their own careers. They don't have to wait to patiently uh, move up the greasy pole uh, in the uh, House or Senate. Uh, they, can, they can set up uh, 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 committees. They can communicate with specialized groups. They may, to some extent, they represent the hometown folks, but increasingly they can put together uh, uh, a group representation of national constituency groups for one uh, or another of, uh, of, these, uh, of these hundreds of causes and don't really have to pay that much attention to the old uh, policy uh, hierarchy. They have to pay attention to the partisan hierarchy in the House and Senate, uh, but we do not have the disciplining effects of the old-fashioned uh, policy uh, hierarchies. But we do have the Constitution, and that's where this all leads to the executive state, because the Constitution specifies the Congress in great detail. It is not only a representative legislature, a huge committee, uh, rife with conflicts of uh, interest and faction in different regions and different philosophical points of view. Uh, but for good measure, the founders threw in lots more uh, cumbersome uh, making procedures, bicameralism, many, many others, uh, to make lawmaking a slow-moving and broadly consensual uh, activity. Um, uh, so all of these new pressures on the political process that would frankly have been inconceivable if you think of the technology of the 1930s. Uh, uh, people in Congress had a problem of how to respond uh, to these. Once Congress had become atomized uh, and lots of people were working on behalf of lots and lots of different causes, how do you deal with this in the context of Congress? And you do it by passing broad laws and turning over the lawmaking to executive agencies. 
Uh, the executive was well prepared. It's not highly defined in the Constitution. Uh, it operates by hierarchy, specialization, uh, things that uh, Congress uh, has a great deal of difficulty with. Uh, but uh, these advantages have accelerated uh, in recent years with, uh, with new uh, technology. Uh, lawmaking is, uh, 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 rulemaking is often done by, uh, by emails. Uh, people will find out new policies because they're part of some tight little uh, email group uh, and can find out what's really going on uh, on the, uh, the inside. Uh, they can, the agencies can uh, construct uh, and uh, maintain to some extent uh, coalitions. Uh, on, it doesn't mean everybody loves what they're doing, uh, but they negotiate uh, uh, agreements so that there is a tolerable, uh, uh, sustainable uh, coalition in support of what they're doing. Uh, Congress simply, uh, simply cannot uh, keep up. And I have a brief pay on to the great uh, James Scott uh, uh, book, Seeing Like a State, uh, where I think that these advantages uh, now uh, with the ability to gain uh, just tremendous, tremendous high resolution microscopic information basically on everything that's going on uh, in the economy is going to uh, increase that, uh, uh, is going to increase that uh, advantage. Uh, so that's my explanation and I contrast it in part for purposes of uh, just exposition and clarity with what I just come along and say is the, the conventional explanation that I'm debunking. Uh, and my conventional explanation is progressivism, that the, that the specialized executive state uh, is, uh, is the article that Woodrow Wilson wrote when he was a professor at Princeton in the late 19th century, and then he got elected, and he advanced the idea of, uh, of uh, uh, neutral, disinterested, scientific, uh, uh, policy making in, in distinction uh, to the uh, ignorant, uh, corrupt uh, stupidity of the uh, representative uh, legislature. Uh, and people who have, and I'm not a, you know, I think that there are a lot of good things about regulation, so, but I think there are a lot of bad things. People who are critical uh, tend to be, think that progressivism was a terrible wrong turn. And people that see uh, uh, the Chevron Doctrine, extreme uh, deference, uh, uh, and the courts pretty much absenting themselves, except in some hot button cases like global warming, uh, and letting the agencies do what they please. That's sort of a later, uh, kind of a, a wrong turn. Uh, these explanations, uh, it seems to me, uh, don't, it, it seems to me they don't really help us out very much. In my view, they were not intellectual wrong turns. They were rationalizations of what was happening in the yes, sir, in the uh, in the material uh, world. Uh, that this is a uh, that this is a uh, a phenomenon uh, that uh, uh, that has uh, that has its own momentum, and we are explaining to ourselves uh, what is happening. Many of the explanations are uh, are wrong. Um, the idea that the agencies have particular uh, expertise, as opposed to being specialized, different phenomenon, uh, that you find a great deal of expertise on highly uh, complex matters. You can certainly find some of that at the uh, Food and Drug Administration. Uh, you can certainly find some of it in some of the uh, uh, financial agencies. But I think that, I think that it is greatly uh, uh, overrated. I want to make a couple of points uh, in conclusion. Um, 
my view of the nature of the, uh, of the problem uh, uh, puts uh, barriers uh, in the way of thinking about uh, reform. Uh, and so the first thing we have to realize is that these essential ideas of more formality, cross-examination, uh, there are proposals. They, the House passed some proposals that would move a lot of rulemaking uh, rule into formal procedures. Uh, uh, pull up your socks on standards of evidence, especially in science. Uh, we're going to have the clash of uh, lawyers, adversarial uh, argument in front of in front of independent lawmakers. Um, this has been going on for 60 years. It's never passed. What's actually happened has been dramatically in the opposite direction. Um, I think that uh, I, I try to identify what I think are important new problems in the rule of law uh, uh, with the, uh, the new executive uh, state that we have. Um, uh, specialization is a, is a good thing. I'm a good economist. I understand specialization. Uh, but specialized lawmaking uh, lacks the flywheel of, uh, of, the, of, of, of the generalist. Uh, and can move law in bad directions simply because we have these these uh, tight little uh, tight little cultures. I'm not a I'm not a capture man. I'm a culture man. These regulatory programs are tight little cultures. And the greatest example of how things can go off the rails uh, was with the complete misunderstanding of mortgage-backed uh, securities in the uh, years before uh, the. Uh, uh, 2008 uh, collapse. One reason that it's hard to assign blame is between government and banks is they were all part of the same culture. They all saw things the same way. We actually did socialize risk in that everybody was seeing things uh, in the same way. The, the, the SEC didn't see the Bernie Madoff fraud. I knew people that knew the fraud was going on when it was going on. The SEC didn't know it because he was part of the culture. He was in there. I think they gave him a medal he was, he was head of some, uh, uh, some advisory group. Uh, I think the worst is uh, that specialization simply leads to a vast increase in the sheer volume of law so that more and more of our lives are subject to uh, uh, state coercion in the form of uh, ex-ante uh, prescriptions of one kind or another. Uh, why? Why is that a problem with the rule of law, simply more law? It is because so much of it is bad law. And I think, uh, I think that the problem of scale uh, is important and that we have so many bad policies in, in part because the government is doing much, much more than uh, it could uh, possibly do well. Uh, and the result is a huge uh, disillusionment. There's uh, uh, th uh, uh, the, the rule of law is in part uh, you want to hold on to it because there are times when you really need it. Uh, and the incontinency of our law uh, has uh, grown. Uh, uh, I can actually show that empirically, Charlie. Uh, uh, the disillusion with, with government has grown pretty strongly since the 1970s. Uh, and I think that in many cases it is well-justified disillusionment because the government is doing so many things uh, terribly. Uh, uh, the slow, cumbersome, lawmaking procedure of the representative legislature is an important bulwark uh, of limited uh, government uh, and the rule of law simply because it leads to stability. Even when we have bad policies, if it stays there for 50 years, people can adapt. 
uh, move on. Uh, the world uh, makes its uh, own decisions. People can predict what the law is. They don't have to invest a lot of essentially uh, waste, uh, uh, waste a lot of money on monitoring what's going on in Washington so they can adjust uh, their affairs. Now the law is changing all the time. Rulemaking, as Richard will remind us, is very cumbersome. It takes a long time. It doesn't take anything like uh, 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 legislating. Uh, and uh, now with these new information technologies, it's possible uh, to do things very quickly. So firms has to have to invest vastly more in keeping up with, wa with what Washington is doing. And, they ha and there's a lot more unpredictability. Uh, unpredictability, especially in the past couple of years with the new Obama administrations. We now have the element of surprise. Uh, a minor uh, Treasury official on a th Friday afternoon uh, ha posts something on his blog site that changes the contours of the employer mandate uh, starting in four months. I think I was exaggerating there, but not, not, not too much. I mean, just changing, you know, important aspects for somebody that's running a business, whether you're covered or not, you know, what the details are. Uh, these things, there's no notice, there's no comment, there's no taking account, there's no explanation, there's no court review. It's just a blog. Um, that's a little bit of an, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm moving quickly here, but you get the picture. Uh, and, uh, and abuse of power. Uh, uh, we see a lot of... Uh, we see a lot of things that could uh, fit into the usual pattern of concentrated power uh, leads to greater abuses of power. Uh, I don't know what the final story on the IRS uh, uh, scandals will be, uh, but I do note that contempt of Congress, that used to be something you could go to jail for or you know, be punished for. Contempt of Congress is now conventional practice in Washington. If you look at how uh, executive branch officials treat Congress, including people of their own party in testimony, uh, it's just, it's just uh, astounding, and the IRS hearings were part of that. Uh, the, ability, the, the, the increasing legibility of the population, surveillance, produces all sorts of uh, uh, opportunities. Um, the, in Chicago a few weeks ago, you may have seen this one was actually uncovered for uh, photo enforcement of uh, uh, running red lights. Uh, once they had these uh, things all over the system, somebody in the government figured out they could increase revenues by taking the standard timing of the yellow light, three seconds, and just move it to two seconds. You just grab, grab more and more people. Well, you know, that, that you, you couldn't have done exactly that thing at such scale uh, in the past, and there are opportunities for it. Uh, I, will talk, I, I want to uh, uh, sit down now. Uh, I talk about several reforms that people such as Philip Hamburger and, uh, and uh, Philip uh, uh, Carroll, uh, uh, Frank Fukuyama have uh, proposed. I go into some detail about the RAINS Act, uh, where, where Congress would recover uh, its authority over major regulations, which would not be able to take effect until Congress approved them, an extension of the cost-benefit test, uh, which has been applied within the executive branch uh, to, uh, to making it a revision of the Administrative Procedure Act uh, for, um, uh, so it would be enforceable to a degree uh, by the courts. Uh, I think that these are good proposals. Reigns, like all of the other proposals for uh, reinserting the legislature and legal formality into the executive branch, it runs directly against congressional incentives. It would require a change 
uh, where we figure out a way to adapt the idea of the representative legislature to the high technology world uh, before we could have an effective RAINS Act. Cost-benefit analysis, it's more specialization. It kind of goes with the flow of uh, the growth of the administrative state, so it's, a more, it's more natural. Uh, both of these could end up, like past reforms have, being swallowed up uh, by the administrative state and used to its advantage. Uh, and it's easy to tell scenarios uh, how that could be done uh, so that when we uh, begin to take these problems more seriously than we are today in the political world and face uh, these uh, uh, reform problems, uh, they are, they're going to be very difficult. Thank you very much. The discussant is Mike McConnell. Thank you, Alan, for that very flattering introduction. Uh, <laughs> um, I did want to uh, begin with a personal note about who I am in relation to uh, Chris, because um, many of you don't know, we go way back. My first job as a lawyer off of my uh, clerkship uh, was uh, at the at Office of Management and Budget uh, as Assistant General Counsel. And my, most of my job, I did a lot of different things there, but my principal uh, uh, duty was being Chris's lawyer. And so I met with Chris all the time and on any number of issues. And I want to say I, I've worked with a lot of uh, important, distinguished, impressive uh, people in my life. But I think that I, as I look back on it, I cannot remember a single issue out of hundreds that came before uh, Chris DeMuth and his capacity as the head of OIRA where I believe that he allowed anything to partisan judgment, interest of any sort uh, to get in the way of his understanding of the common good. Uh, that doesn't say everybody will necessarily agree with Chris's understanding of the common good, but uh, I think as a model of, uh, of, of public service that Chris really uh, uh, sets an, an, set an extremely high bar. Uh, I also liked his paper a lot, except for how depressing it is. Uh, because if he's right about his positive descriptions, um, there's really not much we can do. And so, Alan, maybe we should just uh, forget the rest of the conference and go home uh, if Chris is really right. What I want to do in the f minutes that have been given to me is not so much to critique Chris's paper, but to talk about some complementary themes that are more of a constitutional uh, side. So um, is this... Uh, so when Chris and I parted ways in the, in the uh, middle 1980s, uh, he went off to become, the, for 30 years, the head of the American Enterprise Institute uh, and dealt with in the regulatory world, and I became a constitutional law professor. So I'm inclined to view many of the same issues that Chris is talking about through a constitutional lens. And I want to identify three ways in which I think that the expectations of the constitutional founders have proven to be false. Now, I am not saying that this means that there are unconstitutional things that have happened, although obviously there are a few of those too, but that the expectations about how the basic structures of our system would work have turned out not to be so. 
Um, beginning with an, an one observation about the executive, one about the legislative, and one about the judicial. Beginning with the executive, uh, there were, uh, I think, three major understandings of the executive that were uh, present and debated at the uh, Philadelphia uh, Convention in 1787 to 88. Um, one of them put forward most fervently by Roger Sharman of, of, uh, of uh, Connecticut is the administrative executive. The whole point of this executive is simply to execute the laws that are going to be passed by Congress. And so Sharman believed that if that's the kind of executive you want, then the Congress should choose the president. The Congress should decide the length of the term of the president. The Congress should be able to remove the president uh, at will, none of this impeachment uh, business. Congress should be able to decide how much to pay the president, and there's no, and you're not, and there will have no veto power uh, because that the job of the president is simply to carry out the will of Congress. Um, that view was decisively defeated at uh, the convention. Uh, then there is what we might call the Madisonian uh, conception of the president, in which the main job of the president of the president is to check the excesses of the legislative branch. M Madison believed that Congress would be by far the most powerful of the branches and the most dangerous of the branches. And what we wanted to do was introduce a, an independent presidency that would be able to check that through such things as the veto, but also through executive uh, being able to introduce a, a degree of, of uh, mercy or leniency with respect to law execution uh, as another means of uh, of controlling congressional excess. And therefore, we have a president who's chosen through a means entirely apart from Congress. Congress plays very little role in the election of the president, uh, the fixed terms for the presidency, uh, and, uh, uh, and of course, a veto, and then a protection against removal. All this designed to make the president independent so the president can be an effective check against uh, uh, congressional excess. Um, Madison's view did carry the day, and I think that was probably the dominant view at the convention. But there's a third view, which is Hamilton's view. And uh, Hamilton had, uh, did not see the executive, he thought the executive should be independent, yes, uh, but he did not see the principal function of the executive as checking the Congress, but rather uh, being uh, the driving force in American politics. Um, the executive should have energy secrecy and dispatch. Uh, the executive is going to be active. Uh, he says in a couple of his writings in The Federalist that uh, the, this new uh, constitutional government is going to be judged primarily on the basis of administration, which is to say the executive is really the heart and soul of Hamilton's uh, constitution. But note that Hamilton did not envision the presidency acting or the executive acting uh, in, uh, without law, uh, the, the president would be the, uh, would be the initiator of political action. So as Secretary of the Treasury, we see Hamilton preparing reports. He prepares the report on, on the Mint, the report on finance, the report recommending the Bank of the United States, the report on manufacturers, the report on trade. Uh, all of these are reports given to Congress 
to be the basis for, uh, for congressional uh, legislation. And this model of the presidency, I think, becomes, this, is, this becomes uh, uh, Franklin Roosevelt's model for sure. Many strong, politically powerful presidents use the presidency to initiate uh, an agenda uh, and really be the, the dominant uh, 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 political force uh, in, the, uh, in the government. Well, Hamilton's view went almost unnoticed. It was not rejected at the convention. Uh, just enough of this kind of Hamiltonian presidency is reflected in the text that he was able to run with it uh, when he was Secretary of the Treasury. So it wasn't exactly embraced, but it also, but it was enabled by the constitutional founders. <clears throat> Turns out, though, that we have yet another kind of executive, in fact, and I call this the prerogative executive. Prerogative is defined by John Locke and others as the idea of the executive acting, is exerting authority other than through the uh, administration or execution of the law, where the king or the president has his own power to act without uh, advance authorization of, uh, of Congress, and as, uh, and as Locke says, sometimes even in the face of contrary law. Uh, so prerogative is sometimes exercised against silence, and it's sometimes even, that's the more controversially, controversially exercised, contrary to uh, enactments of Congress. And the uh, the, the way in, this, in which this works, this is basically the 17th century British a constitution where Parliament very rarely enacted laws. Uh, what, what Parliament existed to do was to check the king. So this is in, in some ways the opposite of Madison, Madison's executive. If Madison's executive's job is to check legislative excess, the prerogative <laughs> under the prerogative executive, it's the job of the legislative branch to check the excesses of the presidency. And, um, and this is done in various ways, uh, funding cutoffs, uh, uh, bills of attainder against the king's officers, and uh, you know, a, a whole variety of things that enable the par a parliament to be able to resist when the king's exercise of prerogative power is, uh, is abusive or, uh, or unpopular. And it seems to me that that's where we are today, that uh, presidents create policies essentially out of whole cloth. The fiction that, there, that the Congress sets general policy and then the president, and delegates the power to the president to work out the details is really pretty thin uh, at this point. We have whole regulatory regimes never conceived of by Congress. Net neutrality is, is just the latest uh, uh, example of this. Uh, um, we have uh, uh, the whole wetlands protection regime was made up uh, regulatorily. The, the, uh, the, the new move to regulate student sex on campus uh, was the, totally the product of, uh, of, a, of a letter uh, sent out by the Office of Civil Rights. Uh, uh, and the recent uh, creation of the uh, of the Deferred Action for Parents of Americans program under immigration would be an example of prerogative exercised contrary to law, that is in the 
face of, uh, of contrary law. And so we have a presidency, I think, that is now modeled on the 17th century king rather than on Sherman or Madison or even uh, uh, Hamilton. Uh, which brings me to the legislative branch. Because the theory of the, 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 the founders' belief was not only that the legislative branch was going to be the most powerful, uh, but also that checks and balances uh, were going to be the main way in which we protect American liberties. Remember, the, the Bill of Rights wasn't even tacked on except as an afterthought uh, uh, by the first Congress. And the real way in which American liberties were to be protected, according to Madison's account in Federalist 10 and 51 in particular, is that we have an extended republic, therefore we have lots and lots of factions, different interest groups and, and, and so forth, and we have so many factions that it's gonna be hard for them to coordinate, and what Madison's theory was is that they'd only be able to get together and pass laws when, uh, this, when those laws would contribute to the common good. Now, I've never really quite understood Madison's theory. Um, I understand how Madison, this sort of Madisonian uh, uh, check, checks and balances factional uh, system prevents the government from doing bad things. It stops bad things pretty well. What I never quite understood is why we would expect this kind of system to produce good things. It's just a whole lot better at stopping uh, things from happening than it is at enacting uh, good things. But maybe that is the idea of the common good that is behind, uh, behind Madison's idea, that we just do not want a whole lot of law. Uh, maybe because, as Chris says, you know, a lot of the law is going to be bad. We just don't want a lot. Uh, so stability is a good thing. Uh, change is a bad thing in the legal area. And, and so if we just make sure that not very much gets done, then, uh, then we'll be better off. That might be the theory. Um, it doesn't work out that way though, because once you move ahead 230 some odd years and we now, instead of, at the beginning it may have worked because it's hard to get things passed, but with the 230 years of accretion of a regulatory thicket, lots of stuff gets done, and in particularly when, um, sort of like the idea of artificial intelligence where computers are going to be able to make their own and program their own new computers and eventually you know, it's going to be, I don't even understand how that could work. But the regulatory system does work that way, uh, that now uh, the regulatory system can create its new regulatory regimes, and you never even have to go back to Congress anymore. It's, so you get plenty of change, plenty of instability, plenty of new law. Uh, and if it is so that Congress's real job in our sort of 17th century prerogative constitution is to check executive excess, the checks and balances that make it so hard for Congress to act make it mean that we're not going to get much checking of executive excess because it's so hard for Congress to do anything even to prevent uh, executive overreach. And you just look at what, uh, what goes on even when we have a Republican Congress that is uh, all hot and bothered about various uh, things the executive is doing that they think are unlawful, and, and, and they can't do anything about it. 
It's the, the, the DHS fiasco uh, in the last week is just the, the most recent bit of uh, evidence about that. And think about our constitutional structure and how badly designed it is for us, for Congress to, to be a check against executive uh, uh, overreach. If the president is able to act on basis of prerogative without any prior congressional action, and then it's just, and, and then Congress has to stop him if he doesn't like it, all it takes with the president's veto, all it takes is for the president to have one third of one of the branches of government to sustain his veto, and Congress is going to be powerless uh, to do anything about it. Contrast that to the 17th century parliament, which was able to cut off funds to the king, was able to pass bills of attainder against the king's officers, and thus when there was a determined majority in parliament, they could stop the king pretty much from doing uh, whatever they, uh, they wanted. Not so, not so today, a determined majority in Congress is powerless uh, to uh, even to prevent what it believes are illegal uh, actions on the part of the presidency. Which brings me then to the courts. Um, I think that the uh, founding vision of the courts was that they were going to be courts of law. Uh, I don't think that a very political uh, uh, role for the courts was envisioned. Uh, a lot of the founders believed that we should create something like the mixed constitution uh, that Aristotle and Polybius uh, uh, described in theory and that uh, Montesquieu thought that the British Constitution represented. And that's where you have, a, you have democratic a branch and you, then you have an executive and you also have an aristocratic branch. And the job of the aristocratic branch is to give a second, sort of be a little bit more farsighted, uh, to think about the future, to, uh, uh, to reconsider the wisdom of things so that you don't have immediate democratic things uh, going on. A lot of, lot of people thought that was a good idea. We couldn't do it here because we didn't have a hereditary king, and we didn't have a hereditary aristocracy, and we didn't want them. So we didn't have the social wherewithal to have a real mixed constitution. So they were sort of scrambling around, and for the most part, they thought the Senate would be uh, the aristocratic branch. A um, lot of people thought that. Uh, that doesn't turn out to be so, especially after popular election of the Senate. But turns out we do have a House of Lords. There are only nine members uh, of the House of Lords, but we've got a House of Lords that gets to decide not just the legality of what's going on under standard practices of law, but the wisdom of what's going on, uh, and that seems to be the well-accepted accepted job, and, and not just of, um, just a two, two minutes more, if I might, Alan, uh, uh, not just the Supreme Court, but the entire judiciary. So when you, and when you think about the political construct, the construction of the judiciary as a political branch, forget about law for a moment, just envision them as a, as, as a kind of house of lords, and I don't mean that in a pejorative sense. Uh, the courts are actually very well designed structurally to check executive power because of the way in which they are appointed for life. 
who do the judges, if you think about the courts as, as political branch, who do they represent? The answer is they represent past political majorities and particularly past presidents. It's especially easy to see this on the Supreme Court where we have a justice, we have a justice who was appointed by Ronald Reagan still sitting there. We have a justice who was appointed by the first President Bush still sitting there. We have two justices appointed by, uh, by Bill Clinton still sitting there. Two justices appointed by George W. Bush and two justices appointed by Obama. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a kind of a layer cake of past political majorities still sitting in judgment on the laws. And what that means is that it's very hard for a current president to completely dominate the, uh, uh, the judiciary. And so, uh, and, and particularly when a new president is elected and hasn't appointed anyone to the judiciary, you can expect a certain amount of resistance. Every president encounters resistance from the courts. I certainly, Chris and I used to bewail the way in which good things that the Reagan administration would try to do would get hammered back by the D.C. Circuit. It happens to every president, right? But at the end of an eight-year presidency, uh, on average, the president names 40% of the lower federal judiciary and usually two members of the, of the, uh, of the Supreme Court. That means that the courts are actually well-balanced. In some ways, they're the best structured of all of our institutions of government because they, they do change as political winds change, but there's an inherent reason for them to be balanced and not to be completely uh, 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 beholden uh, to the present uh, occupants of the office. But just one last observation and then I will sit down. As the courts have become the principal institution for checking uh, the excesses of the prerogative executive, um, uh, it has become clear that the success of our system depends upon a, a happenstance that will not necessarily always recur. That happenstance is that the presidency changes a political party every eight years. In my lifetime, that, is, that has happened. Every eight years, we have a different, we have a turnover, except once when Jimmy Carter was a poor enough president to uh, sacrifice four of his years to the other party. If you look at the sweep of American history, this has never been true in the past, but it has been true ever since uh, 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 Harry Truman's uh, presidency. And I submit to you that if we ever have a situation in which one party begins to dominate to such an extent that it controls the presidency for more than eight and certainly for more than 12 years, that uh, the last remaining check on, uh, on the prerogative executive will uh, no longer exist. Thank you. I'd like to comment first by saying that my own view was that has been that Madison gave us a constitution which by and large limited the government to doing public goods, what later became economists called public goods, and that that broke down because the factions that he talked about got organized 
and politicians figured that we could give them benefits and buy their votes. And that has been a successful strategy for especially in recent years. Um, one part of the problem that I hope we'll discuss more in the, <clears throat> from the floor is that while you mentioned the <clears throat> checks and balances, we have administrative agencies for which there are virtually no checks and balances. They legislate, they adjudicate, they administer, <clears throat> and that is a big part, I believe, of the problem that we face in the rule of law. And <clears throat> Chris mentioned the RAINS Act and other attempts to overcome that, but uh, my own view is that the House passed the RAINS Act when it knew that the Senate would not act. We'll see whether they're willing. I've been trying to get them to think about such things <clears throat> now when they have a Senate. Of course, it would probably be vetoed, but nevertheless, it would establish the point that we want to do something about restoring checks and balances to the legislative process, and uh, I don't get much response. All right, we'll open it up to to you, oh yes, of course. I'm sorry. I want to. I want to make one comment on um, Mike's uh, terrific uh, presentation. I think that the founders' constitution uh, gives Congress a lot of power that is still there uh, on the parchment if they wanted to use it, and that its uh, uh, fecklessness. Uh, even now, at least in the first couple of months, where we have a, a, a period of completely divided uh, government, uh, in uh, resisting what the Obama administration wants to do, uh, has, has to do with the dynamics that I've described of internal disestablishment, that the Congress is not a unified body even within either of the parties, but an assemblage of political uh, activists with independent uh, constituencies. Uh, Congress has in recent years been giving away uh, taxing power, borrowing power, uh, and uh, it's the, it, the linchpin, which is its appropriating power. Uh, it has not passed uh, regular uh, appropriations, I think almost at, almost at all. It, 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 once or twice they actually publish a, a budget, uh, but everything gets rolled up into a continuing resolution rather than 12 or 13 appropriations bills. And when Mike and I were working in the, uh, in the government, in the Reagan administration, we not only had to contend uh, with those uh, meanies at the D.C. Circuit Court, uh, but we also had to contend with the Congress, which routinely, routinely is too strong a word, but um, uh, frequently, passed appropriations riders on OMB appropriations. It happened all the time uh, where they prevented us from doing things that we were that we had dreamed up and that we thought were great and they, they simply uh, stopped us from doing it. They stopped the, in the antitrust revolution, they stopped uh, Bill Baxter from arguing that Dr. Miles should be overruled. This was, he, it actually said he may not say that when he's making the argument before the Supreme Court. These things he's putting in an appropriate, after, the, after President Obama announced 
the, uh, the changes in immigration uh, policy, Congress said, well, we're just going to put in, a, we'll fix him, we're going to put in an appropriations rider. The next day came the word, oops, sorry, we just did our research, we made a mistake. Uh, the Center for Immigration Services, it's not on appropriations. They don't have anything to do with us. They're financed by their own fees. So we can't, we, we don't have this control. And they've been giving up appropriating power uh, right and left. So I, I believe that if Congress wanted to exercise the powers that the founders gave them, uh, it would, there's a lot that it could do to counterbalance uh, specifically the kind of excesses uh, in my view, excesses uh, of the past uh, couple of years, uh, and that it is not simply the conventional collective uh, action uh, problems, that they're very powerful, but it's these two committees and so forth and so on, uh, because I can point to times in the immediate past, even uh, a decade after 1970, when if Congress could get its act together, it could call the shots, and uh, it, it did so uh, not uh, not infrequently. So I believe that if it were possible to restore uh, some degree of hierarchy and discipline, which I don't think is completely impossible uh, in our modern uh, jazzed up uh, political world, uh, that it, it could do considerably more in playing the checks and balances game uh, than it is today. Okay, thank you. Khaisu? Thank you. So I like to think about some of these issues from a comparative uh, perspective, looking at uh, what has happened in other countries, yes. and in particular, I, I think I, I'm going to try to defend Madison's idea of the Republic being conquered by pressure groups. If you look at countries, especially in Europe, that have a parliamentary system, especially over the last 40 years, by now the parliament is a joke. Basically, you elect a prime minister every four years, and he goes to the parliament once every two weeks or so uh, for TV performance. And the parliament particular given that you have proportional representation, so the parties are the one really deciding who is over there, you are just electing 300 people that stay there for four years and do nothing. So in that sense, the fact that um, we still have checks and balances and a Congress as much less powerful than it used to be in the past has, I think, really make a big difference for the US. So in that sense, I fully agree with Chris that the point is trying to make Congress more powerful and try to get them back into uh, a much more um, uh, vigorous activity because otherwise we are going to end up in the same way that most European countries where you have a prime minister that decides absolutely everything, doesn't have any virtual constraint at all. And a very a, a small point, in, in addition to it, what you end having is very um, powerful political groups getting control of the prime minister, the prime minister responding to these very particular powerful groups, and there is not a lot of democratic accountability, and the fact that you have all these populist parties raising in Europe and becoming very powerful, I think is just a huge part of the electorate being very, very unhappy with that current situation. Yes, in the back there. Um, yeah, I wasn't sure, Chris, if you were trying to defend Chevron or just trying to explain it you said that it was a um, explain it okay because so, um, I, I, I would have been with the majority in that particular case but I'm trying to so, so I think they made the right decision in that case uh, but I uh, as, as for the this very ornate doctrine that we're now living with I'm trying to explain it rather than defend it I wouldn't right, defend it so um, 
Okay, so, so that, that's helpful, but um, to my mind, I mean, the explanation sort of works a little bit better for that particular case, but more generally, um, and even with respect to that particular case, you know, the, the argument generally is made that this is, this would have been a policy decision for the, for the Supreme Court to make, for the DC Circuit to make. But um, that's not, at least that's not the way I view it. Okay. <laughs> I, yeah. I view it as a, a question um, can be viewed either as a policy question or could be viewed as a law question. And if it's viewed as a law question, it's a close case for the reasons that you mentioned there, there are the materials. But it's a close law question, if you view it as a law question, is different than a policy question. So um, I don't think it was inevitable to, to view it that way. More generally, if you look at the, the range of cases that, that Chevron is applied to, um, there's lots of situations where you, know, you can say with a fair bit of confidence that A is the better interpretation than B, but still someone might say it's, it's not clear. Um, so um, I guess I'm, I'm very unsympathetic to, to Chevron, but uh, on those grounds yeah. that I think you can, you can view the matter legally and you, you don't have to have that kind of situation where you're, the, the court would be making up policy. But even if the court were making up the policy, I'm not sure it would be such a bad thing um, because it would be some kind of check on the agencies. And, and basically what Chevron has done is taken all the delegations that Congress gave to the agencies and added to them these interpretive, dele these, these interpretive delegations, which has sort of massively increased the amount of, of power of the agencies. So I don't know what you think of that. Um. I'm sure we could have written it differently uh, and stayed away from the two-step uh, and uh, stayed away from this very formal thing that agencies uh, where the statute is ambiguous that they, that they get to make the, uh, the call. That was not necessary in the case. I would not have wanted to say as the Supreme Court, we interpret uh, source to mean a factory, not a smokestack. Uh, because that would have, it was an earnest policy disagreement. It wasn't a disagreement about what the statute meant. The statute didn't have anything to say. Uh, and I would not have wanted to free, I would want to, in the situation of the administrative state that we have, uh, I would not want to have that debate be frozen because there was going to be evidence coming in and there were going to be different administrations and I'd want to leave some play in the joints. But it could have been decided in a different way. Uh, it could have, they could have simply said, it, they, they could have cabined it so it didn't grow into this monster uh, uh, to, to hold it to particulars very much like the, dis the policy disagreement in the case. I think that the court should have distinguished between two different situations. One is where the statute clearly provides authority to the agency to act with respect to the matter in question. And so I don't. I think right. in Chevron itself, there was no doubt that there was going to be some role for a source. Uh, and then the question is just, you know, what, what, how is the, that authority going to be uh, exercised, smokestack right. or, or and, but I think it's a very different question when the question is whether the statute gives the agency authority to act over a particular area. Right. And in that, I would not only think that we should not have Chevron deference, but I think, if anything, we should have the opposite rule of construction uh, uh, that uh, un unless Congress has been tolerably clear that power has been delegated to the agency, 
uh, it hasn't been. Dan? I think Barry. Oh, I'm sorry. Barry. Barry. Um, so, Chris, you decry the decline in Congress. Uh, it's losing its role in policymaking, granting authority to the executive branch, both explicitly and through inaction. Uh, Michael called this a bleak picture and suggested we all go home, although I noticed Alan shook his head no. <laughs> um, my question is, uh, uh, is this permanent? And it's not obvious to me. And let me, let me give you a different, a, a different story, beginning with a little history. Um, so one of the things that's up for grabs now in, in the House and the Congress in general is majority status. This has been relatively rare in American history. Uh, uh, and in particular, there is a, a, a very important piece of this that if you look at the sizes of the Democratic majority in the House from 1954 through 94, the 40 year period where, of Democratic dominance, and you compare that to the 20 some odd years since, since then, uh, the largest majority in Congress that a party has had uh, since 94 has been smaller than the smallest majority that the Democrats had in the, fi in the 50s through the 90s. And that's an important fact because it means the marginal members of, the of, a, of a party in, in, in the House uh, is ju are just that, they're marginal members. It's hard to put together a real clear majority uh, 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 in, in the way that the Democrats were able to do for in a 40-year period. Now, my thought is that this is also not permanent, that, that at some point an, a big issue will come along that cuts across the current cleavages and we'll see the return to a majority again. That's what's happened in the past uh, as well. The only time in Congress where there was uh, uh, Long-term divided government was, of course, in the late 19th century after the Civil War, and that disappeared very quickly in 96, 1896. And so I'm just wondering, you know, your thoughts about it, because one of the things that parties are going to be doing is, under the current circumstances, is because majority status is so slim, they have very short, they have much shorter time horizons, and that they're desperate for things that will give them an edge. And so I think a lot of things that are going on. Uh, that we see going on that look very short-sighted are short-sighted precisely because the circumstances uh, make people short-sighted, make people, make members of Congress short-sighted. Uh, yes, and and I do not think we're doomed. I think that well, <laughs> I think that I think that there I think that there are prospects uh, uh, for change. I, I mentioned some uh, in the paper, and I think you make I think that you make a very good. A point that you could you you can have an orderly Congress uh, when the individual member doesn't count for much, and uh, uh, and that 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 is that is a possibility. Uh, consider the uh, the possibility on the other side, however, uh, that the changes in uh, communications technology and uh, our ability to uh, use uh, technology for political purposes uh, may. Be behind uh, this uh, this uh, division uh, when we can. If you've if you've actually seen what it's in it's in the presidential campaigns, but you see it in the Senate and House campaigns. Uh, they have. We're almost getting to the point where each party has every individual voter on a list and contacts every individual voter. And Weingast uh, is on the fence. And he doesn't take calls, 
uh, but we know he's written some papers with such and such, and why don't we talk to such and such and get him to It sounds ridiculous that you could do that with 200 million people. It's not that ridiculous anymore, and when you have a system that is very biased to two-party supply and really, you, you, you'll get some third-party competitors, sometimes fourth, but that tends to be very unstable, and you get that degree of technology and people are putting together extremely uh, elaborate uh, platforms to appeal to, to people at a very specific level. Uh, I, can, I, I can tell myself a, you know, a possible story that that conduces uh, to very, very narrow divisions. So, um, it, 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 it doesn't necessarily matter how big a House majority is so long as the House is organized according to a majority of the majority uh, rule. That is, if the, if the party in the majority is committed to never passing anything that is not supported by a majority of its party, then, uh, which has been the way the House has been organized, I don't actually know when that started, but I think since the, uh, but I think in practice it got started much earlier than that, uh, and so that means that it doesn't uh, it doesn't much matter. But twice, very recently, including with the DHS bill uh, a day or two ago, uh, Boehner has violated that, and important legislation has been passed with uh, the support of a minority of Republicans joining with the with the Democrats. Uh, I think putting aside partisan loyalties and who I agree with, I think as a, as a constitutional matter that the majority of a majority rule is, very, is not very good because if you think about it, that means that the median, the person with the most power, the median legislator is about, is the 75th percentile person. Whereas uh, if you have a general vote of both parties, uh, then it's the median is going to be somewhere closer to the 50th percentile, which means a more moderate uh, uh, Congress, which on the whole strikes me as a, as a better thing. So I think rather than electoral, these electoral things that you refer to, Barry, this mattering, I think it's the rule, the underlying voting rule, uh, is much more important than that. I would add to that, I'll come to you in a minute. I would add to that that my observation is <coughs> that we're talking about major change. And major change usually comes when there's a sense of crisis and that our job as academics, that's why this conference and other activities of this kind <clears throat> is to come up with solutions to these problems that look attractive as compared to what legislatures would do in the absence of those things. That is our job is not to try to convince them to make the change tomorrow, but when the crisis comes, to have available ideas which will improve the way in which the system functions. That's my strong observation. Yes. Look, I, Richard. Certainly as a descriptive matter, I agree with virtually everything that both of you have said. The question I wanted to ask you is a sort of what if question. Suppose what we did was we kept federal jurisdiction on substantive issues to roughly what it was before the huge transformation under the Commerce Clause in 1937. And then what we try to do is to ask what we think is likely to be the relative power of Congress and the President uh, within these smaller domains. Um, 
you have any predictions of which way this will go? I don't have any strong institutions, but my own sense is that Congress at this point would have fewer things on its plate, probably amount to some greater degree of cohesion. There'd be fewer things for legislation. There would probably be less scope for, def for delegation. And so that the shift to the president on this thing would probably be somewhat smaller than today. But that's just a kind of a, an initial impression. I want to know whether you guys think it's right or wrong. I have the same. I have the same hunch, but but I don't know. Uh, clearly, clearly the fact that Washington was in business to do anything to solve any problem anywhere in America, once it became possible for every problem to be pressed forcefully upon somebody in the Congress, uh, uh, that that created a dilemma that I think delegation has been the essential solution to. Uh, so 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 if the federal jurisdiction was greatly uh, diminished. I, I think we, I think there would still be a lot of uh, uh, even our interpretations of the Commerce Clause uh, would leave Washington with a with a lot to do, and uh, so there'd still be some, but I I think less. You know, it, it's it's a kind of it's a this is a problem that Barry can solve because it's it'd be very subtle. There'd be a lot of moving parts. But the crisis uh, is going uh, to don't come. Don't forget that state and local government have also increased in power. It's not. It's not as if there's not. It's government power isn't a zero sum game. So I don't know. Is it five percent? <laughs> <of, laughs> what the crisis? Well, don't forget the most important change of all, which was the invention of air conditioning. The, and I'm not joking. Deal. No, he came, came to the Congress in 1929. <laughs> Air conditioning, 1929. What's going All on? All the stuff about the New Deal and the Depression, it's wrong. It's a material explanation. They could stay in business all year round. What's going to force change... I'm kidding. ...is the fact... I don't think you should be kidding. <laughs> what is going to force change is that sooner or later we're going to have a budget crisis because we have promised more spending to more different groups than we're able to pay. And sooner or later, that's going to create a crisis which is going to force change. But chaotic change, don't think... Well, that's our yeah. job, is to see that we get good change. That's our job as academics, to try to get good change discussed, accepted, right. or at least thought about instead of chaotic change. Well, I, I, I agree with that, but the part of the, of the point here is the best way to get out of budget deficits is to have a much stronger economy. And I, I think that it is, this is out of my field, but as I'm speaking now just as a, as a citizen and observer, I think the regulatory thicket is at this point one of the things that is really a drag on the economy with a lot of regulation that, that it has a lot of costs and not very many benefits to them. The cheapest and easiest way for us to, to, uh, to solve our budget problem or at least to ameliorate our budget problem, I think, would be to prune back a lot of that. I agree with the statement about regulation being the best, the path. I have tried with the congressmen I know to get them interested in saying 
It's not the taxation system, it's the regulatory system which is really holding us back, but it's very hard to get anybody to do anything about it. At least that's been my experience. But let me caution you. Yes, we could improve the growth rate substantially. We do not have visible anything that's going to get us to pay approximately $100 trillion worth of promised costs for health care, mainly for health care. We just don't have anything on the horizon that will do that. So that's where the crisis is going to come, in my opinion. All right, then we're adjourned. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, iTunes U, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.